0: Welcome to Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth where we explore how studies here are changing our world today and in the future. This month, much to our surprise, is Zombie Awareness Month. It's the perfect opportunity to explore two things, zombies in pop culture and a chance to ask the question,
1: how would we all act in a zombie apocalypse? Planning is something that's really, really important and the time for prep is before the incident occurs, it's no use reading the book on how to survive while the zombie apocalypse is ongoing. That's Dr Sarita Robinson, an expert in disaster and
0: emergency psychology at the University of Central Lancashire. And alongside Dr John Leach, survival expert and visiting research psychologist at the University of Portsmouth, and Matthew Higgins, a lecturer from the School of Creative Technologies who's a big fan of zombie pop culture... We're going to explore the psychology and practical solutions to fend off the undead. If you've been watching the HBO series The Last of Us, answer this honestly. Would you be the person who fights, follows, or gives up? Because in this episode, we're going to reveal how your reaction to a fictional apocalypse could well inform how you'd behave in a real world scenario. Today we have TV shows like The Last of Us and The Walking Dead. But Matthew said zombies have been around way before we saw them on the big screen.
2: It starts with Haitian culture, and specifically Haitian slaves. And it kind of stems from a belief and a superstition that if they tried to escape their situation via suicide, they would be punished by being brought back to life and kept in their rotting undead bodies.
0: Sorry if you're squeamish, but this is an episode about
2: zombies. So, what did you expect? That kind of leads into like voodoo religion and the idea of like witch doctors and shamans being able to like revive people, which that kind of then led to the first kind of depictions of zombies in kind of like media. So, I think the first film, technically, I say technically, is I think White Zombie, which is kind of, it's more of the indoctrination side of being a zombie. So, it's about kind of. I think a plantation owner who uses a voodoo witch doctor to mind control his kind of workers for whatever reason. But there's elements there of kind of what we see today in zombies, which is the idea of like the swarms of mindless people in that case. So that kind of the first technically kind of zombie film, but they're not zombies as we know them.
0: And the origin of the zombie template in modern popular culture might well be I Am Legend, Not so much the big screen version starring Will Smith, but the 1950s book that the film's actually based
2: on. The book is about vampires. It sets the stage for a lot of the post-apocalyptic fiction in the first place. It's set in a a kind of post-nuclear winter world, and there's literally only one man left. And at night, the vampires come out and they, they attack his house. But there's aspects of what we know to be zombies now, especially in the sense that, in the book at least, they are kind of virally spread so we've got an aspect of kind of zombies, but they're vampires. But they have the same idea. If they have a singular weakness, you have to go for the heart, not the brain. And they swarm, they have their mass, there's hordes of them. So we have some of the first seeds of the zombie pandemic genre there. And that led to some kind of adaptations. Last Man on Earth is one of the first few where there's, they're a little bit like zombies, but they're still absolutely vampires. But that led to what was going to be an adaptation but turned into kind of ghouls and zombies, which was uh, Night of the Living Dead, George Romero. It still stands up. And even now I watched it the other day as, as you know, research, because that's the coolest kind of research you can ever do, watching a bunch of zombie films. You can see that even the kind of the idea of they're, they're undead. They are risen from the dead. They are mindless, flesh-eating creatures that were once human. They spread via bites. They swarm together. They, they kind of overtake by kind of, slow, shambling inevitability. And that's kind of where the horror comes from, I think. And then they inevitably are the downfall of civilization.
0: In all honesty, we could talk about zombie movies all day, but there's some important exploration that needs to happen in this episode of Life Solved. How would a zombie invasion play out in real life? According to Sarita, the key
1: is preparation. So in America, this idea of the survivalist mentality and they drive around Land Rovers and shotguns. we are not talking that. Prepping for me is about having the basics in place. So basic first aid training. Can you help somebody if there's a first aid incident? You don't want to be downloading it on an app. Basic things like having some food is, is really useful, um, but it's about scanning the environment, knowing where the potential dangers are and making sure that you think about what could go wrong and do an intervention beforehand. So things like having a fire blanket, having a little fire extinguisher in your kitchen is much more useful if, you know, your microwave goes a bit funny at some point than than if you haven't. So it's really basic things, little tiny alterations to the way you live that can just have this huge advantage if things
3: do go wrong.
0: John thinks that it might be our great-grandparents that would fare better in a zombie apocalypse, perhaps because they were better trained at preparation.
3: What today we call prepping became standard practice after the Second World War. And a number of times when people's grandparents died and they went to clear the house out, they found the cupboards and cellars stacked with tin food and other things. Why? Because they went through rationing. And we tend to forget just how severe rationing was during the Second World War. and. It's even possible that Britain might've collapsed sooner if the Nazis had been able to keep their U-boats active in the North Atlantic and cut those routes even further, then we would have had serious problems. Those were lessons that were learnt during the Second World War, and the people who came through that made sure that their houses were stocked. And what has happened is that our food supplies and other materials had become more extensive, that we take it for granted Those lessons have been lost, so we now have that new norm, and that new norm is lots of goodies around. So we just go down to the shops. So that is where we store our food supplies It's in the shop, not in the home.
0: Back in the fictional movie world, it tends to be the young men who take the lead and ultimately triumph over the zombie hordes. But Sarita thinks things would play out differently in real life.
1: I would say that um, young men potentially don't have all of the sort of skills and things that they need to keep them through and actually if I was to say who's going to be your best survivor I'd say it's mum's and dad's people who've got caring responsibilities if you think about it parents are the people that have a go bag with them all the time they're prepared for anything but they don't call it a go bag that it's the nappy bag it's the stuff that the kids medicine and food change of clothing all those things is already in and they take it around I would definitely say that there are some people who may just be a little bit more invested in surviving and that can be people with caring responsibilities because they're not responsible just for themselves but for other people, whereas young men tend to be quite free and single a lot of the time and therefore they're just on their own path and can run at the zombie with a chainsaw and not worry about the consequences. The so-called loner is often the victor in a zombie movie. Someone
0: like Bill in The Last of Us. No spoilers, we promise. But would it work out for Bill in a world of real-life
1: monsters? I sort of think that social support networks are really important. Sometimes your lone survivor is great and they've got everything that they need and they're not having to worry about other people so they can just focus on themselves. But humans are quite social creatures. They get a lot of the strength and resilience from that social network and they can draw on that power. And as a group as long as it's a well-functioning group, then I think survival chances are enhanced.
2: A lot of the fiction will focus on how people band together and there's this kind of hopefulness around having other people in a family of sorts, literally or otherwise, to rely on. But typically, it always comes down to faults within the family. There's the few people that don't kind of work well with others, there's disputes, there's disagreements. And often that is the kind of the downfall of the entire kind of like group that's the pattern of walking dead is a big band of them and then they kind of breaks apart and they have to escape and there's a few that survive and then they find more people and they band together and it breaks apart walking dead is very much about yes you can band together with people but ultimately the zombies aren't the real enemy and i think that's a really interesting theme for a lot of zombie apocalyptic fiction is it highlights more that the the real risk is other people which is quite awful
1: i'd say the science backs that up Really? (laughs) So when we look at things like polar overwintering stations or we look at Mars colony simulations, then it's the interpersonal relationships that break down and a lot of interpersonal conflict that occurs that can then put that community at risk because people are just so annoyed with each other. John has done
0: extensive research into human behaviour in the real world and might be the perfect person to have on your side when the zombies attack But for him, he's less interested in the survivors, but the ones who don't make it through.
3: Why do so many people die when there's no need for it? So people die in situations where they did not have to die in those situations, and they can die quite quickly as well. And that particular area came into what the Americans in Korea called give-up-itis, where people who were taken prisoner would just turn around, lie down, and die. We noticed it predominantly in my early work in life rafts and in shipwreck where people who ship had gone down, they were in a lifeboat and they'd be dead within three days even though they had no injuries.
0: Why might this be? John thinks there's something going on in our minds much deeper than on the conscious level.
3: Two factors that tend to come in is that a person finds themselves in a position they don't want to be in And they can see no way of either relieving it or escaping from it. So they're boxed in and one of the things that comes out frequently is the last words of these people and they usually refer to having no future. So they see no future for themselves, they see a present only and it's a present they don't want to be in. If you took with people who are going through a natural death process at home or in hospital or in hospice and some of them will say, yeah, my time is up. And they acknowledge that.
0: John isn't a fan of the term give upitis," and prefers the British term face-the-wall syndrome for the same scenario. After all, he doesn't believe that people just give up.
3: People are not just giving up. They are actively going through the process of dying. It is an active process. It's like sleep. We say, oh, we're falling asleep or he fell asleep. No, you don't fall asleep. It's not a passive process. It's part of the brain that actively puts you to sleep and it actively wakes you up. But going to sleep is an active process. It is a deliberate process. And I think what we have going on here is an active process. And I propose the neural circuits and the pharmacological basis as to how that is happening. And it's just like a normal death. So we are all survivors. Everybody here has survived every day of our lives to be where we are now. So from that perspective, there's nothing special about being a survivor.
0: And back to the world of zombie fiction. Are there similarities with a person who gives up in a movie? There's always at least one character you know isn't going to make it out alive. But Matthew thinks most film characters consciously throw in the towel.
2: I'm trying to think of examples where it's not an active process. I and mean, The only one that comes to mind, I think, is... Night of the Living Dead, the leading woman hits a similar state for a lot of that film. She's catatonic. She's clearly lost hope. She's not even engaging. There's an interesting difference there, I find, where usually it's, it's a lot more kind of a
3: active process. It is an active process, but it's at a subcortical level. So it's not a decision-making process. Yeah. People can withdraw and quite calmly do from the event. But withdrawal can also be an adaptive survival coping behavior. In part, particularly if you've got rationing and everything, if you are withdrawn, then you're saving energy. You're not calling attention to yourself unnecessarily. And people tend to adopt a wait and watch position. So they're going to see what's happening next because they can't respond actively in the present. Where it becomes a problem is. If that withdrawal ends up in apathy, turns into regression, and even when the situation around does change, where they could actively engage with their own survival, they do not do so.
0: By now, you might be wondering how you would personally react in a fictional zombie apocalypse. According to Sarita,
1: you're likely to be one of three personality types – I tend to think of these as cool, calm and collected. So those are the people who just take charge. They seem to know what they're doing. They've got a little bit of preparation behind them. They've got the skills and they'll lead from the front and organise people. And it it, it seems to be about 10 to 15% of people who've got the cognitive flexibility to deal with what's going on. They can take in the environment and they can respond to it in an effective manner. And then there seems to be another group i don't know maybe 65 to 80 percent of people and they're a little bit like sheep yeah they're they're still with it sort of cognitively they're still sort of working out what they might want to do they're looking for the leader because they can't quite get their brains into gear to to engage and formulate some effective decisions about how they should respond to this situation that they've found themselves in And on the other hand, the sort of bottom 10%, I call them the headless chickens. Yeah, they're sort of struggling with what's going on, um, but they're desperate to do something. But maybe they're misguided. uh, Maybe they just haven't really fully comprehended what the situation is, but they're trying to do something. And maybe that's actually going to to lead to people getting into more trouble. Or they can just go a little bit of cognitive paralysis. That's when they just can't do anything and they might freeze in
3: position. And the other thing to bear in mind if you're talking about the original shock of find yourself in a dangerous situation whether it's zombies coming for you or other things there is that in that moment of shock the prefrontal cortex the thinking part of the brain is more or less taken offline so you lose initiative so what you're falling back on is what you already have and A lot of the people who become calm, and collected are people who've got the training, the experience, the knowledge which they can put into place without having to think about it. So it's already there, it's already laid down. Through the prefrontal cortex, it's put into subcortical regions which responds directly to the environment.
0: Much of the discussion in this episode has been how we ward off hordes of mindless monsters. But what if the movie writers are actually trying to communicate a different message that, dare I say it, we're a greater threat to ourselves than the zombie is.
2: Maybe not so directly. Terminator is a good example where it's it's about the fear of technology and its advancement. There's a kind of a reflection of society's fears at the time. Sometimes it's more explicit like that, other times less so. So like with zombies, it's, it's kind of spanned a few fears, for example. Dawn of the Dead specifically was more a kind of comment on consumerism and capitalism. But then kind of later on, especially kind of during the 70s and 80s, very much reflected the fear of pandemic and disease and kind of viruses. So yeah, often like that is the case. Same with um, overpopulation is, is a popular one.
0: We've avoided being flippant about real-world events and fictional writing for the screen, but there are parallels to be drawn from our recent human experience, and perhaps
1: some lessons to be learnt for the future too in January 2020 um, I got interviewed for a newspaper article and they said oh you know apocalypses prepping oh, what we're we likely to have what do you think the, the worries are and I said I'm quite worried about a pandemic so this was January 2020 and so um, they sort of ran with this as a news story and then the following year they came back to me again and said Sarita what are you worried about now and I said oh uh, solar flares I've got a bit, bit of worry about solar flares and the, the headline in that in that week's paper was woman who predicted pandemic now worries about solar flares and I just thought oh dear me but it is it is that thing it's about looking around horizon scanning for the things that might go wrong and just putting a little bit of stuff by uh, just in case it does it would seem that the best
0: way to survive a zombie apocalypse is to prepare keep it cool know what kind of character you are and how you fit in and uh hope for the best but like any good film we've got a plot twist for you Despite all his good advice, Dr. John Leach has never watched a zombie movie.
3: I'll put my hand up. I've never seen a zombie film. I don't have a television set. I threw my television out when I was in my 20s. Uh, I've never seen Netflix. The nearest I get to a zombie invasion is when the TV licensing people turn up on my doorstep. <laughs> but they've stopped doing that now. Hello.
0: <laughs> Thanks for joining us for Life Solved. If you want to find out more about research at the University of Portsmouth, go to our website. You can also get news of the latest developments here at the university direct to your inbox. Just subscribe at port.ac.uk forward slash solve. We'll be back next Thursday to ask the question, can true crime be ethical? More and more victims are using social media platforms to share their stories. So we'll explore the positives and the pitfalls of doing this. Catch you then.